This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're meeting the candidates for governor. In just two months, Coloradans will whittle down the field in primaries that are open to any voter. Today, we meet Republican Victor Mitchell of Castle Pines. My colleague Nathan Heffel caught up with him at Bluffs Regional Park for an afternoon walk with Mitchell's wife, Amy, and their two golden retrievers. It's a wonderful hike. It's a three and a half mile loop. And some of the best views in all of Colorado. I also get to know a lot of your neighbors on this hike. I've been walking this hike for almost 20 years. Oh, really? And it never gets old. <laughs> How long have you lived in this area? Uh, almost 25 years now. And I started a company uh, here in Arapahoe County in January 1996. And like many people, we came here, we didn't have any intention of staying we just fell in love with Colorado. People have been so generous we, uh, to our family, welcoming to our family. We didn't, know, we didn't know a single person when we came here. Two of our three kids ended up being born here, and it's become our forever home. Mitchell has run six companies, accruing enough wealth to self-fund his campaign for governor thus far. He says he started his first business at 21. You know, the reason I started that company was because I was paying my way through college as a limousine driver, as a chauffeur. And I kept telling the owner of the company that he wasn't running his business right. I kept on saying, you know, you could do things better this way and you could do things better that way. And he said, Mitchell, you're fired. So I figured the only way to get back at him was to start my own company. So I started my own company when I was 21 years old. We were old enough to own the vehicles, but not old enough to, to uh, drive them because the insurance required 25 years or older. And the irony of that story is, the, per- the company that ultimately fired me was ultimately the company that acquired me many years <laughs> later. And Vic Mitchell is in our studio. Welcome to the program. Well, nice to have, nice to meet you finally and be in studio with you. Thank you for having me on. What's the single biggest problem facing Colorado and what would you do to solve it? Well, the biggest problem facing Colorado is 40% of Coloradans have health insurance. Uh, but can't meet their deductibles or co-payments. I mean, so you're basically, we've got all these, we're very healthy people. Uh, we have a lot of young people, especially here in the metro area. And uh, it's it's just criminal that, that people, you know, the premiums are so high, the deductibles are so high that if you can afford to pay the premiums, you often can't, don't have the cash to meet the deductibles. So we're basically paying for a service we can't use. When you say 40% of Coloradans, where is that figure coming from? That's come from private insurance, looking at average people's savings that they have, and you're looking at the average deductibles, and you, it comes out to close to 40%. There has not been a specific study. The Democrats love to talk about that 95% of Coloradans now have health insurance because of the... Medicaid expansion. But, you know, Medicaid doesn't work for most people. It's it's low quality. It's ration care. Most doctors won't accept the reimbursements because the reimbursement won't accept Medicaid because the reimbursements are so low. So Colorado needs health care solutions such as what I've put out there. Yeah, uh, let me say that you propose some key changes to how absolutely. Coloradans receive health care, namely eliminating Colorado's health exchange. Correct. I'll say that as of January, around 8% of Coloradans were buying insurance through that marketplace. And you would also roll back the expansion of Medicaid, uh, which uh, I I would say uh, others would argue has brought more coverage to people. Uh, That expansion increased enrollment by 400,000 in Colorado. So how would those folks get insurance 
under the changes you'd make? Oh, insurance would be unchanged. They just wouldn't get it through Medicaid. Um, but they would get – We want. I want to have full transparency in pricing. So if you go to any healthcare clinic or any hospital, any provider in our state, they have to tell you these are the cash prices, these are the insurance prices. I want to reduce mandates on insurance providers so they can have more customized insurance options for people. And then I want to basically provide, basically use this excess funds that we currently are using for Medicaid expansion to provide entrepreneurial block grants to nurse practitioner clinics, physician assistant clinics, mental health professionals. We would have a team of, we would basically have a committee of, of medical professionals, retired doctors and nurses and the like, and they would study people's business plans. And then if the state approved it, the state would fund up to 50% of their annual operating budget. If they didn't meet the key metrics that they had promised the state, then the following year they would lose the funding. But my vision the, is- the metrics meaning affordability, for instance, could access be, to care. But how are people could be who- quality of care. It could be, are they meeting the right patients? Are there, is the pricing transparent? Are they delivering what they promised? So those who can't currently afford health insurance and who rely on Medicaid, how are they paying under your view here? Well, right now we have 26% of all Coloradans are on Medicaid. I mean, that's an astronomical number, more than one in four Coloradans. We only have 3% unemployed today. So right now, people who are on Medicaid are generally not just the working poor. Uh, these are basic, or used to be set up, the Medicaid was set up just for poor people. Now it's basically expanded to almost middle class people. And that's fundamentally wrong because that's really not what this program was designed for. So you would direct them to the private insurance market. And well, presumably the changes that you want to make would make that more affordable? Is that is that the Not exactly. The My vision is is that any Colorado rich or poor, urban or rural, should be able to access high-quality primary care without, that's right, without the need for insurance, where insurance goes to its primary functions of, of, critic, of specialty care, of chronic illness, of emergency, uh, things that are very costly. But primary care is very predictable and can be done more often than not with nurse practitioners, with physician assistants at a fraction of the cost. I want to implement a lot more uh, um, clinics that will, um, will incorporate telemedicine uh, where they can get specialists on the line. I mean, we are the healthiest people in the country. We have the lowest rates of diabetes. We have the lowest rates of obesity. We need health care options that work for all Coloradans, especially people in rural communities. I understand you made a trip to Appalachia not too long ago <laughs> to see yeah. a clinic there that serves yes. poor rural communities. It's called right. Health Wagon. Yes, sir. And in an ad, you ask, why can't Colorado use a similar model? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the health wagon is my wife and I have been involved with for a number of years. They're part of Catholic Charities. And um, they, they do, they're probably the most efficient provider in the country. They, they service 25,000 people a year on a million and a half dollar budget. They charge $10 per patient visit. They give you a $4 prescription drug voucher. Um, they've negotiated directly with the pharmaceutical companies. They're vertically integrated, so they can do things like use telemedicine. They've, they do colonoscopies. They do mammograms. They do wellness. They do mental health screenings. Uh, they are very, I mean, they're, they're run entirely with female nurse practitioners. I and went, they don't accept any insurance. They don't accept insurance. No, sir. Uh, so I went to check it out. It was started by a nun who dispersed health care originally from her yes. VW Beetle. Uh, <laughs> it, it relies on donations it of does. money and supplies. So the wish list uh, currently for Health Wagon includes syringes, sterile saline, ibuprofen. I is that a model you can scale up to statewide health care? Well, look at what they're doing right now. They get about 50% of their money from the state. They get about a third of their money um, from private donations, and the rest they get from basically the small fees that they charge. 
Um, the quality of their care is second to none. I mean, they're the, the, I can tell you that we've had the same doctor for 20 years. Their quality is phenomenal. And I'm not saying HealthWagon is for everybody, but that's just one example of an entrepreneurial uh, aspect of delivering high-quality care without insurance. There's t- dozens of other examples being done around the country, and that's what we need to bring in. Instead of talking about Medicaid expansion, getting every person on Medicaid, Medicaid is, is a failed program. It doesn't work for the vast majority of people, even who have Medicaid. When you say it doesn't work for the vast majority of people, what do you base that assertion on? Do, do Can you say that... Ninety percent of people have said that. I can tell you that we have literally met with hundreds of people across the state we've heard from uh, that are on Medicaid that say they can't go to the doctor they want to go to. It's no different than having rationed care. It's no different than having uh, care that's done in the U.K., that people come here all the time to get care because they can't see their doctors, because they can't get major procedures done. So, you know, Medicaid was never designed. I mean, we, can, we should both agree that Medicaid was never designed to be used the way it is today. You have said in television ads, as well as on the campaign trail, that you're a political outsider, uh, but you did serve one term in the state legislature from 2007 to 2009, representing Douglas County. You were part of a campaign that thwarted a 2011 tax increase that was on the ballot for schools. You were also co-chair of Mitt Romney's presidential (laughs) campaign in Douglas County. What is it about this election year, this race, that has you casting yourself as an outsider? Because I am an outsider. I mean, for 31 years... I've built private companies. I've never worked for anyone other than myself. I've built very successful private companies, six of them to be be exact. <laughs> if I served 10 years ago, I served for one term in the state legislature and was very, I loved it. I, I represented one of the most conservative districts in the state, but then I went right back to the private sector. I'm not taking any special interest money. I'm not taking any, uh, accepting any political endorsements. So I'm the only person that's actually put forward very specific, bold ideas to transform a lot of our bureaucracies, like we just talked about with Medicaid. Is there I, something about this year, though, that the outsider label is a powerful one, do you think? No, I mean, that's just who describes me. I mean, I've been an underdog outsider my whole life. Um, that's why our campaign is so different. That's why we have such a large movement now, almost 50,000 Facebook supporters today. We started with zero a year ago. Um, but I think it's laughable that my opponents co- co- copy me all the time on trying to call themselves outsiders as well. But, you, I mean, I'm, a, I'm the only true outsider businessman in this race. You talked about funding your own campaign uh, and not, as a result, taking outside donations. Why that route? We are taking small donations from – we've taken in thousands of small donations from grassroots people, but we're not taking, um, you know, basically special interest money, lobbyist money. Um, we're certainly not – Uh, accepting any political endorsements, because I think with political endorsements come political favors. And the same thing goes with special interests. So you're saying that none of those individual donations come from lobbyists? No, none whatsoever. And our average donation is $20.18. I mean, it's time we start putting the people of Colorado first. I plan to do that as governor, just like I'm doing it in my campaign. Let's focus, Vic Mitchell. You're listening to Colorado (laughs) Matters, by the way. And we are continuing our conversations with the people who want to be Colorado's next governor. Republican Vic Mitchell joins us this time. I want to focus on transportation for a bit. CDOT says it has a $9 billion backlog of projects. Many of Colorado's roads and bridges are in need of repair, and uh, this is as an influx of people come to Colorado uh, with increased congestion as a result. There could be a ballot measure this year from the business community to raise taxes for transportation. Would you support it? Absolutely not. I'm not supportive of any new taxes or any bond increases whatsoever. Matter of fact, I want to put our government on a diet uh, the let me t- be very specific. I put forward a plan to get two billion dollars into roads and infrastructure without increasing taxes or fees by reforming the whole uh, CDOT bureaucracy. I'm bringing in an outsider to limit their total overhead to no more than twenty percent. 
Right now, about 30 cents of every dollar of CDOT's budget goes to contractors, the people who actually build our roads and infrastructure. I want to change that to 80%. I also want to deploy all their cash and cash equivalents that's on their books today. And I also want to change an obscure committee that's in the, uh, called the Legislative Audit Committee. I want to change that from financial to performance-based auditing to look for ways to drive waste and inefficiency out of state bureaucracies. I'll say that CDOT is already under audits by the legislature. You think you can free up up to $2 billion with this? You misunderstood what I said because there, there, there's, there's something called the Legislative Audit Committee, but they only do financial auditing. Yeah. They don't do performance auditing. So they don't, they're not, their mandate is not to come in and bring in a KPMG or an EKSNH, a large accounting firm, to come in and say, CDOT, we, we want to right-size you, and, and you really only need 2,100 employees instead of 3,300 employees. And by the way, this type of information technology, this type of traffic sciences should be implemented. They, they don't do that. Uh, that's, so that's why I want to change that to look for ways uh, to drive waste and inefficiency, but also to, um, to take the politics out of it. If there are $2 billion in CDOT that you think you can free up, why is it that current lawmakers, including legislative Republicans... Uh, haven't found it. Or the governor, who has uh, talked a lot about red tape and making government more efficient. Well, we have a very broken democracy, most especially at the federal level. I mean, where literally hundreds of millions of dollars flows in of special interest groups. Uh, Legislators can't vote their conscience. We lack imagination and creativity often. Uh, So that's why I want to shake things up. I mean, it's time to actually bring in somebody that's run large and complex organizations. So you are saying that current lawmakers simply aren't finding the $2 billion that you think you can. Well, we're not doing performance-based auditing. So how could they find it? I mean, the lawmakers are busy enough. They're they're going to vote, you know, five thousand times. There's a hundred bills that will uh, that will go through. I'm sorry, times five. So five hundred bills they might vote on as many as five to ten times per bill. They're busy. I mean, I was a lawmaker for two years. I mean, they're going to probably vote a couple thousand times over one assembly. They're not going to be able to go in and do a deep dive. You need performance auditing. You need like a KPMG or an Ernst and Young or somebody to come in and look for ways and then take all the politics out of the process. Later this week, teachers from around the state will walk out of their classrooms to protest low pay, among other issues. The head of the Colorado Education Association says the state underfunds schools by $822 million annually. First off, do you think that the teachers are right to walk out? No, I don't think they're right to work out, but I do think walk out, but I do think they are terribly undercompensated. And I think that we should have a collective understanding where everything is on the table, including reforming para- um, asking possibly for um, summer schooling. Uh, more is the spe- state pension fund. Exactly. So the public pension fund, the largest pension fund we have in our state is a $32 billion unfunded liability. So I think everything should be on the table, but there's no question we abysmally compensate, as far as salary goes, our educators. So, so that's if, why we have shortages of math and science teachers across the whole state, most especially in our rural communities. If you say that they're paid abysmally, uh, help me understand your thinking about why you don't think it's appropriate that they walk out. Because you have to look at the whole package. What The way that works right now is they have an extraordinarily generous retirement program, but a very, very low annual wage. So we, want, we have to look at everything. We also want to bring well, a lot- Why shouldn't they be able to walk out is, is my question. Well, they, because I don't think public pension, uh, public employees should have the right to strike. I mean, I think that's just bad for our state. There's other ways. They have other benefits. You know, we're, we should be a completely at-will state. And uh, I, don't, I just don't support public, uh, pe- public employees walking out, especially teachers that are criti- provide critical services. Two Republican lawmakers have introduced a bill at the state legislature that would prohibit Colorado teachers that, from yes. striking. Uh, they could face fines, firing, even jail time. If they do strike, would you sign a bill like that? I would not. You would not? No. Why not? 
because I think it goes too far. Okay. I, I think teaching is an tr- incredibly important profession. I was a I was an adjunct professor a couple of years ago up at CSU. I taught in their business college. I served uh, as a as a a trustee of a major state university. I'm a huge supporter of the whole school choice and education movement. I don't think that's the right approach. On to higher education, Vic Mitchell. You're very passionate about STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. You want more STEM graduates to fill tech jobs. Absolutely. And you propose directing every penny (laughs) of state support for colleges and universities to STEM degrees exclusively versus, say, liberal arts. Absolutely. Why? Because right now, if you want to pursue a degree at CU, for example, in electrical engineering or physics, those are the most expensive degrees, but they're also the most relevant degrees we want for a modern economy. We have, in some studies, as much as five times as many high-paying jobs available today than kids who are actually graduating with these relevant degrees. We want to, These are the toughest degrees to pursue. We want to make them the least for affordable. Uh, we want to make them the most affordable, so they're the most because they're the most relevant. But my my higher education plan goes beyond than just uh, making the costs of STEM degrees less expensive. My higher education degree also calls for a complete freeze of all higher education funding for the entire term of my administration. So no one is going to see a tuition increase during the entire term of my administration. I also want to drive down the high cost of student housing. Uh, Student housing is roughly a third of the cost to send a kid to college today. It's uh, up to $13,000 a year to to house your kid for eight months at CU. I mean, it's ridiculously too expensive. It's out of reach. And and our, our kids are taking on enormous debts in large part because... Uh, higher education has become so expensive. A Magellan poll shows that immigration is a top issue for Colorado Republicans. Where do you think you most differ from uh, the other Republicans in this race on the issue of immigration? Well, I can tell you one fundamental difference between myself and my opponent, George Bush's cousin, is I support holding civilly liable any elected official that refuses to cooperate. You're making a reference to Walker Stapleton. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. Uh, to to basically hold any elected official, whether it's a mayor, whether it's a count, town council member, whether it's a county commissioner, if they refuse to cooperate with federal ICE agents, they should be held civilly. They could be held civilly liable for that. What would that look like? G- give me into the details of that. So, so ba- a mayor might be prosecuted under that for what? Civilly, yes, and uh, that's exactly right. I mean, if we work together and we allow a criminal alien back into our community and they commit mayhem in our community, there's real consequences. To that I also support. Um, basically defunding sanctuary cities as well. Uh, I think that that should come directly out of the general fund. I mean, if we can't have a situation where the mayor say, I swear on the Bible, I swear on the Constitution, to uphold the Constitution. And by the way, we don't like this law, so we're just going to ignore it. We're going to enforce this law that we do like. So what, I mean, that's anarchy. Change the law if you don't like it, but you can't simply just ignore it. One aspect of uh, this idea of a sanctuary city, and that, that term is squishy, but one aspect is whether jails should be holding people longer than their state charges for the federal government, for immigration officials. Is that what you mean by sanctuary city? I think they should cooperate directly with federal ICE agents. If any person has committed a felony or any serious crime whatsoever, they should; those people should be deported. Uh, there is cooperation even in some sanctuary cities that ICE is notified but uh, this it's insufficient, qu- as you and I know, both know. I mean, this is not working today. The and I also support. Wouldn't it be ironic if President Trump passes uh, broad immigration reform, which I totally support? I think that would be terrific if we can get that done. There's a fair deal that's on the table today: twenty-five billion dollars for a border wall and other security in exchange for the DACA kids having a pathway. That's a fair deal, and that should be put forward. And I really commend the president 
and I hopefully uh, Michael Bennett and Cory Gardner will get behind this and we can get this passed. It'll be good for Colorado. It'll be good for agriculture. It'll be good for our service sector. What kind of funds would you hold from what you deem to be sanctuary cities? I don't know yet. We'd have to look through the general fund. I mean, this is exactly what the long bill is generally proposed by the governor. We'll have to look for areas. Not going to be something that devastates the city, but something that's meaningful to the city to, to basically comply with federal immigration law, which is only fair. I mean, they've agreed to uphold the Constitution. They should do exactly what they've agreed to do. They were elected to uphold the Constitution, not to pander with people's lives and put our communities at risk. Thanks for being with us. <laughs> it's a plan of pleasure. Republican Vic Mitchell is running for governor. Between now and the June primaries, we will introduce you to the other candidates. And you can hear my conversation from yesterday with Democrat Mike Johnston at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Well, they have seen and witnessed something this afternoon which is going to be talked about for many years in the sport of cycling, for many years in the history of the Tour de France. And still, Phil, he will not give up. He will keep powering all the way to the line because every second now is going to count for Floyd Landis from San Diego. Floyd Landis only had a few days to celebrate his victory in the 2006 Tour de France. After a blood test revealed performance-enhancing drugs, Landis was stripped of his title and banned from cycling. Ostracized and suffering from a hip injury, he turned to liquor and opioids. He also followed the well-worn track of cyclists accused of doping. Deny, deny, deny. Did you use drugs to win the Tour de France? No, Robin, I did not. Then he dropped a bombshell, admitting he'd been doping for years, along with the biggest names in pro cycling. Well, more recently, a new path. In 2016, Landis opened a cannabis products business, Floyd's of Leadville, crediting the drug with saving his life. And now he's pushing that business in a new direction, touting the benefits of non-psychoactive CBD hemp oil. And Floyd, welcome to the program. Hey, Ryan. Thanks nice for having me. Before we talk about your business, just just a bit of news. So 12 years after your fall from grace, you heard last week that Lance Armstrong was settling the whistleblower lawsuit that you filed in 2010, uh, which the federal government later joined, in what became a $100 million complaint against Armstrong. Uh, the deal gives you almost $3 million, including your legal fees. Are you happy uh, to settle that case? Yeah, I think, you know, Lance probably feels the same way. It's been a long, long time, and <clears throat> it's cost both of us a lot of money. And, and I, I'm, I'm glad it's over. I, I'm a little disappointed that more didn't come of it for the sake of cycling itself. I mean, obviously, Lance was the biggest star that there's ever been in cycling, and so the anti-doping agencies focused on him. But there's bigger problems in the sport, and it's unfortunate that they didn't get solved. But but for me and Personally, for me, it's, yeah, it's it's a relief. Well, let's dig into your disappointment that more didn't come of it. What do you mean? Well, I mean, you, we're, it's, ironically, we're in Colorado here, and USADA, the anti-doping agency that oversees the Olympic sports in the United States, is in, in Col- Colorado Springs. Indeed. Um, right next to the Olympic, you know, the USOC offices, and they're all friends, and then the purpose of USADA is to, you know, create a facade and make the Olympic Committee look good. And I think it's pretty clear now to the whole world that it's really just a, a, a giant scam and possibly even worse considering what happened. But Is what I hear you saying that you think doping goes deeper 
then the system has acknowledged, then has been rooted out? No, I don't think it. I, I know for a fact. And, and I think it's clear to anybody that reads all of all of the facts. But the problem is it's it's complex, and so most people don't have the, the time or the, or the interest to, to look into everything. But it's it's a, still as much of a problem as it's ever been. And for, for them to pretend that this house somehow solved something, that taking down Lance was, was going to fix it, is, is disingenuous. Doping is as big a problem, are you saying, in pro cycling as it has ever been? Oh, 100%. There's no question about that. What makes you say that? What, what is the evidence for that? Well, p- for one thing, the, the, the technology and, the, and, the, and humans don't evolve in, in eight, ten years since I've been there. And the speeds that they ride up mountains are the same. And, and the same people run the teams. The people that were, that were there when I was there that were promoting drugs, that were helping to create the doping programs, are still the very same people running it. And, this, and the people at the top, at the, you know, I don't know, most people don't understand how the Olympics works, but the, the Olympics oversees a lot of different sports and they oversee cycling. And it's all the same guys at the top. It's just, it's a massive fraud. And it's, it's unfortunate that they take down individual athletes and destroy their lives over it knowing full well what's actually going on. You think this is a systemic problem that remains? I, no, I know that it is. You know yeah. that it is. Uh, am I right to say that some of the settlement money from this will go to make donors whole who gave to the Floyd Fairness Fund? That was a legal defense fund launched in 07 to pay for you to fight the doping charges. Uh, you avoided jail time in part by agreeing to make donors whole. Right. Yeah, that's that's another long story. But yeah, that'll be resolved and I can move on from that. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Uh, I want to get to your relationship with cannabis. You were using pills to quell the pain in your hip, we mentioned, and to deal with the depression you say you were experiencing after being banned from cycling. How, how did marijuana, how did CBD help you wean from pills? Well, I, you know, I think I, like a lot of people that are <clears throat> initially prescribed opiates, whether it's, you know, Vicodin or Norco or any variation of that, um, probably had a real physical ailment or physical pain to manage. <clears throat> and what happens over time is if if you've got other, you know, pain, if you've got psychological pain, so the things you're dealing with, it, it can become very easy to allow yourself to use those to manage that. They become a crutch. It does. And it works, temporarily at least, especially with alcohol. And, and it's it's easy to just you know, have a nice warm feeling and, and go to sleep and forget about it. But at the end of the day, it's addicting. And, and a lot of people don't have, aren't as fortunate as I was to have a, a support group that, you know, got me through it and kept me alive. Um, marijuana was legalized here a few years back and I'd been living in Colorado. And so and I had used it a few times in my life previous, just recreationally. And, and I, you know, I like the feeling. I, I I'm not as big a fan as some people are. I, from time to time, use it just for entertainment's sake. But it has, for me, it has more value medicinally, just because I do have occasional pain in my hip. And sometimes, if there's other anxiety or other, you know, stress in life that makes those things feel worse, and um, CBD has has really helped me because it's, it seems to have the same medicinal effect without the psychoactive effect, and I can still go about my day and, and function. CBD doesn't have THC, which gives you the high. Correct, and the two work very well together synergistically. But CBD on its own has a lot of the a lot of similar and and sometimes even better medicinal effects. And yet, so many of these products and so many of these accounts are anecdotal, right? It's it's these changed my life, these reduced my pain, these made me feel better. Uh, is it your hope that there is more research to support? or perhaps not, uh, the experience that you have. Well, so here's here's the fundamental problem with that um, 
number one, there there hasn't been that much time to have large-scale studies and, and real data. But at the end of the day, when you're talking about pain and managing pain, it's all that the data will ever represent is anecdotal information. There is no other way to manage pain. So you can say, yeah, we, we'd be better off if we had studies with millions of people, but it, if if everybody that's been using it is giving you the same anecdotal information, I don't don't know what more you need, really. Is it fair to say that cannabis saved your life? Uh, among a few other things, some good friends and some good people around me, yes, that that was a big part of it. And was it hard to kick the pills? Yeah, it's very difficult. I mean, it, it, I, you know, if if you've never been addicted to them, it's it's maybe a little bit difficult to understand. But if you just look at the results of what happens to so many people in this country that are, are prescribed these these pills, um, these these people aren't aren't weak people. They're just they're in an unfortunate situation, and they end up using them to manage things that they weren't designed for. And and over time, it it kills a lot of people. And I think that you know. It would be good if people had a better understanding that there are other options, that's all. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with former pro-cyclist turned gondrepreneur Floyd Landis. And uh, when you announced Floyd's of Leadville a couple of years ago, you were selling top-shelf marijuana products. Now more of this focus on CBD, which we've been talking about. Uh, And it seems that athletes are, are part of your target market here. And that's obviously a big audience in Colorado. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, one one thing that I do think that the marijuana business is is doing, and it's taking longer than I, I wish it would, is is changing the perception of what the value of the product is. Um, it's been taboo for a long time, and it's been sold to the American public as this you know gateway drug, and it's associated with all kinds of things that it's not really responsible for. So we're our target market is people who are, are active and live want to live a healthy lifestyle and want to augment that with with ways to manage their pain that isn't some product that pharmaceutical companies bribe the FDA to approve or some other harmful thing and and it's it's done well and are you accusing the FDA of taking bribes well look this this country is is bought and paid for by lobbyists we know that so whether or not they're direct bribes or not is is uh, it's unknown but it's becoming clear now that even Advil and some of these other anti-inflammatories it's it's been known for a long time that they're harmful used on, on an ongoing basis and 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 people have known it and, and hidden it, and it's unfortunate. And there are alternatives, and and we we help to promote some of those. I want to go back to cycling for just a bit, Floyd Landis. Um, as we said in 2010, you tore down the curtain on doping and cycling, uh, exposing widespread use of performance enhancing drugs in the, a groundbreaking email that eventually toppled the biggest names in sport. Do you ever regret hitting send on that email? especially in light of the fact that you don't think it has led to the kinds of changes you had hoped for? You know, it's hard for me to look back and just pick one thing and say, do I regret that? Because it was a, a long series of decisions that I made, and some of them were good and some of them were bad. And, you know, I guess if I say, okay, I made the same decisions up to that point, was that the best decision? Given what I know now, I'm I'm not convinced that that I would ever advise somebody to go through that. It, it was eight years of, of hell and and, you know, public defamation and all kinds of things by the other side that wanted to promote the, you know, the status quo. So I had hoped at that point, I hoped that something good would come of it. And it did for me. I mean, it allowed me to just tell the truth and that was, that was what was killing me. And so it benefited me personally, but it didn't do anything, any good over and above that. And that's disappointing to me. You have said elsewhere that you and Lance Armstrong are beyond reconciliation. 
I'll say that he lives just over the hills from your Leadville shop. What happens if he stops by one day? Oh, you know, I, I have no problem being civil with him. I, You know, he and I went through um, a real public um, dispute, if you want to call it that, litigation. That doesn't generally leave people in a position where they end up friends. And I, But I, I have no hard feelings. He Look, he paid more than anyone else has paid, and he, and he benefited more than anyone else. But I think it's – I think the two are – relatively i think it's a fair outcome and i and i hope he gets some sort of you know i hope he finds happiness and i hope people treat him with you know an open mind and give him a second chance because he i i would be hypocritical to say people don't deserve one are you still cycling yeah from time to time i ride my bike i not not like i used to i mean i i enjoy it and I, we live in colorado and it's one of the greatest places to ride your bike so it's it's hard not to but i don't go out and train trying to set any records anymore Nice to meet you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. I appreciate it. Floyd Landis is a former pro cyclist and founder of Floyd's of Leadville. When we come back, what can we learn about the mysterious hedge fund owner of the Denver Post? This is Colorado Matters from CBR News. When the remaining staff of the Denver Post newsroom launched a public revolt against the paper's owners, they took on a mysterious company. Alden Global Capital is based in New York City. The hedge fund has dropped newsroom staff from a high of around 300 down to the mid-60s. Alden's website is just a homepage with a forest scene. Its operators rarely make public appearances. Washington Post media reporter Paul Faree has been looking into the company and joins us. Hi, Paul. Hello there, Ryan. Uh, We've said this company is mysterious. What have you been able to find out about it? Well, not a whole lot. They are – mysterious is a nice word for it. Uh, They're just publicity shy. They shun it. Uh, They don't talk to the press, which is kind of ironic since they own uh, nearly 100 newspapers across the country. Um, They don't give interviews. We had uh, trouble finding a photograph of the CEO in order to illustrate our story. Um, That's how publicity shy they are. What little have you been able to learn about them? Well, they're based in New York. They have a number of funds, like many hedge funds do. They um, invest uh, with high net worth in individuals. Uh, some some of their funds start at a hundred thousand dollar initial investment. Some of their funds go up to two million dollar individual investment. Um, and they manage that money. They manage those investments. Um, uh, they do make limited public disclosures through the SEC. Uh, we know where their headquarters are, for instance, and we know that they have funds that are based in, in the Cayman Islands where you get very lenient tax treatment and very limited disclosures. Uh, so they, they've been around since 2007. Um, started by a guy named Randall Smith, who's 75 years old, quite reclusive, um, in, invests uh, in a lot of real estate in uh, in Florida, uh, I guess a personal investment. His protege is a fellow named Heath Freeman, uh, who is really the kind of most active face of the company. Uh, but beyond that, uh, very little is known, um, and they don't say much at all. Can you talk just a little bit more about Alden's portfolio? 
Yes, um, and this has been point of the controversy. Um, they own, a, they have a number of investments, um, and some of those investments have been funded by the profits from their newspaper portfolio. So, in addition to the Denver Post, uh, they through Digital First Media, they own um, a number of dailies, including the Saint. Paul newspaper, um, newspapers around uh, Southern and Northern California. Um, the portfolio also includes things like Greek sovereign debt, IOUs that the Greek government owes. Um, they own a, uh, a chain of retail pharmacies called Fred's Incorporated. Um, a number of these investments have been going kind of bad on them. The Fred's uh, thing has really fizzled since they uh, invested in it. And the the accusation that came out of this rebellion at the Denver Post was that they were using the profits from their newspapers to shore up the investments in these other parts of their portfolio. Um, there's a lawsuit by one of the minority investors in digital first media, in other words, effectively a partner with Alden Capital, which says we'd like to know uh, the details of this. Uh, you've hid the the books from us, and we're suing you uh, so that you will give us some disclosure about what's going on in the operations of the company. So it's not just that they're publicly private, but those much closer to Alden are wondering as well. Yes, I, I am from the outside uh, not entitled to see their books. It's a private company. Um, but uh, this minority shareholder, which is another hedge fund, uh, has said, we don't even get to see it um, as a co-investor with you. And uh, that's not right and proper. And the court is going to take up that question next month when there's a trial. Okay. So we mentioned the Denver Post's revolt against Alden. Uh, some of the other newspapers the company owns have added their voices so the editorial page editor of the Boulder Daily Camera, for instance, posted an opinion piece uh, against Alden on his blog. That's after the camera's publisher refused to run it in the paper. Uh, the editor of the Post's sister paper in Oakland and San Jose followed up with his own editorial. I guess why with that kind of public outcry uh, do you think Alden has failed to respond? It's, it's sort of not a peep, right? Not a peep. And um, I, the only conclusion I can come to is they don't care. We're here to invest. We're here to make money. We're not here to rebut uh, arguments against us. Um, and, um, you know, we're not here to reply to how you think we should run our business. And, um, you know, when it comes down to it, that is kind of their right. Um, I have to say they've been consistent in not saying anything. So, you know, call them what you will and say what you want. They're not uh, going to reply to you. And uh, it's amazing to me because I've never seen anything in many years of working in newspapers and covering the newspaper business as well that the, your own newspapers are complaining about you and, and you won't even, you know, take a moment to respond in some fashion or other. They just have been very disciplined about not saying anything at all. Let's put the layoffs at the Denver Post into some context. So as we've mentioned, Alden runs its newspaper business through that company, Digital First Media. It has other properties in Colorado and elsewhere. Are, are, are we seeing layoffs at those other papers? Yes. And what's interesting about their layoffs is how fast and how deep they have come. 
if you take a benchmark of a paper the size of the Denver Post, and there are uh, a number of them around the country, and you look at the cutbacks. Now, let's first of all uh, stipulate that the newspaper industry has not been a great business. There have been cutbacks for a decade or more. Um, this is the strategy of a failing you know, industry to cut, cut its way to profitability. Um, you can argue about whether that's a good idea or not, but nevertheless, it's been happening. So you take papers of the size and circulation of a Denver Post, they haven't cut back quite as much as the Denver Post has. Um, uh, as a rough benchmark, um, a paper that size has about 150 people in its newsroom. Denver, once all is said and done, is going to be down to about 66 journalists. And so they are literally at half or less than half the strength of a similarly situated newspaper. So that tells you how fast they've been uh, cutting back. And you know, the strategy here seems to be to take as much money uh, uh, as they can out of it, take the profits, um, sell the underlying real estate. They sold the presses in, in one paper they owned. Hmm. Um, they've sold the real estate underlying all the news, many of the newspapers they own to strip the assets effectively. And, um, you know, when push comes to shove, maybe they'll declare bankruptcy and walk away. And yet, with all the publicity that has come with these cuts, uh, it seems that there is interest in having someone buy the Denver Post from Alden. I mean, at least one group of Colorado investors has announced plans. They've raised $10 million towards a purchase. I- is it possible that Alden's cuts could lead to a market in which it sells the post off and does well financially? Yes, of course. And I think that, in, fa- in fact, may well be the strategy. They're not long-term holders. They're not long-term investors. Obviously, they have put very little back into the papers. They've taken out uh, the assets of these papers and, and sold them. Um, and so, yes, I, uh, the paper is not for sale right at the moment. Right. Um, tomorrow may be another day. Uh, thanks for your offer. But uh, at the moment, we're still uh, strip mining the papers and getting our profits out. And we'll get back to you if need be. What do you think the possibility is of a, a rescue? Well, that's up to Alden, isn't it? I mean, they've shown no inclination to want to sell. Uh, They seem to have a profitable thing going uh, for, you know, on straight financial terms. Now, whether this is good for the readers of the Denver Post and people in the community is another matter. I don't think that's of great concern to Alden. Um, This is pure capitalism in its most naked and brutal uh, iteration. And what they are interested in doing is is making money, not necessarily operating a newspaper to its optimum degree. If you could get an interview with, say, Randall Smith or Heath Freeman, who are behind Alden Global Capital, what would you ask? What do you still want to know in this story? Why are you doing what you're doing, and do you see any larger motivation uh, beyond profit? Do you see that newspapers might have some value to a community that goes beyond simply the same bottom line as a shoe store or a, a you know a coal mine or a, a factory somewhere? D- does democracy imply something more uh, to your investment strategy than just 
taking everything you can and leaving the bones behind. And, you know, listen, this is a, a sentimental idea on, in some ways. Uh, but as a lifelong newspaper person, I see newspapers as something more than just a business. And I wonder if they see it as something more than just a, bu- a business. All of the evidence from the outside suggests they don't. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Paul Fari is Washington Post media reporter, and he's been looking into Alden Global Capital, the hedge fund that owns the Denver Post. Denver's affordable housing plan could get a boost, the mayor announced last week. One problem to address is that people who don't have a steady income can have a hard time finding a place to rent. That's according to homeless advocate Kathy Alderman, whom we spoke to for reaction. A listener contacted us to say that's not true, at least not at her company. Let's listen to that feedback now in loud and clear. This is Laura Fries, a property manager who lives in Morrison. When we're running rental applications, we look at those things. And I rent to many people that have alternative income sources. As long as they have income and they can pay their rent, we are happy to oblige. And if they're struggling and they communicate with us, we can put them in touch with people that can help them. And we almost always do because we don't want to incur a vacancy for our owners. And we want to keep them in the properties that they're in because that's their home. Freeze still agrees there's a bigger problem. She says she hears a lot of frustration from would-be renters who can't afford what's out there. A few updates now. A cannabis-based medicine is closer to getting federal approval. A Pidiolex is used to treat epilepsy. Presently, the U.S. government says marijuana has no medical value. But FDA advisors gave the drug a unanimous recommendation. Kristen Nichols, an editor for Hemp Industry Daily based in Denver, told us recently that getting Epidiolex approved could affect Colorado's marijuana and hemp industries in the form of more government oversight. I think we're definitely headed down a path toward greater regulation for this industry. We're going to see a day when a lot of these CBD treatments that are broadly available in farmers markets and in all kinds of shops might see some more oversight. The FDA is expected to make a final decision on Epidiolex in June. A bill that would allow Epidiolex or any cannabis-based drug approved by the FDA to be prescribed in Colorado has passed both houses of the state legislature. A while back, we told you about the body trade, an investigation by Reuters of the market for cadavers. They focused in part on a Montrose funeral home that also housed a body brokerage. It had been raided by the FBI. Well, the Denver Post reports that state lawmakers are moving on a bill to require businesses selling body parts that aren't intended for transplants to register with the state. They'd have to maintain records documenting the donation of bodies and their sale. On a far lighter note now, an update on NPR's Tiny Desk Contest. On Monday, we told you about the entries from Colorado, musicians vying for the national exposure that comes with winning. Well, NPR selected a winner, and he's not from here. Guitarist Naya Izumi is originally from Georgia and now busks on the streets of Los Angeles. Of 
taste of Izumi's original song, Soft Spoken. And heck, you don't have to be soft-spoken when it comes to your feelings about our show. Speak up loud and clear. You'll find all the ways to contact us at CPR.org. Click Connect. This is Colorado Public Radio News.